0: Hi, my name is Jane Cadare. I'm a director of the Institute of Entrepreneurship and Private Capital at London Business School. Really delighted you could be with us today. This podcast is adapted from an online event, which was held back in November, 2021. It's part of London Business School's Entrepreneur Journey series and provides you with a toolkit to start and grow your startup. Today, we're going to be covering legals for entrepreneurs we're going to be specifically highlighting the 10 most common mistakes made by entrepreneurs when starting a business. For this, I'm delighted to welcome David Falkerson from the London Law Collective, who is our legal expert in residence at the school and does an absolutely fantastic job of helping entrepreneurs at the school with their startup legal issues.
1: Welcome to everybody and welcome to startups, the 10 most important legal mistakes. I'm a commercial lawyer with 20 plus years experience of advising predominantly startup companies and entrepreneurs and among other things I'm currently the uh, the legal expert in residence at LBS so I'm delighted that Jane and her team have invited me to um, to present as part of the LBS entrepreneurs journey series. I'm on a promise not to make this dry and legal and dull um, but instead, practical, interactive, and and commercially relevant. So hopefully uh, we can keep the interest levels up in that way. Dividing it, yes, into the 10 most common mistakes, but essentially what's, what's the outcome that I want you to get from this evening? Well, in essence, when you leave this evening, hopefully you'll have an understanding of really the whole journey of a founder going through a startup, setting up the company, Organizing your legal arrangements with your fellow shareholders, taking on and incentivizing employees, how best to do that, attracting third party investment, and eventually, assuming this is the ultimate goal, exiting your business, hopefully on good terms that are financially and commercially ones that you want. So, the premise of a startup, um, which is, I'm assuming, why you're all here. The cheery thought, what is the cheery thought? Well, the cheery thought is, well, London. London's pretty good. London's second only to Silicon Valley and the whole world as the best place for startups to thrive. And that's according to a definitive ranking of, of international tech hubs. No other European city is in the top 10. So we're doing pretty well-ish. Now, the, the, the problem really is that over 90% of startups um, sort of fail within the first few years, which isn't great, I suppose. So how do we make sure that yours is not one of those? Good question. Well, the sort of smugly named Autopsy, which is a London-based startup that looks into these things, they did an in-depth analysis of what you would call post-mortem, unfortunately, quite ghoulish, but of of many hundreds of thousands of startups that didn't work. And well over 75% of failures were down to two things. First, you've probably got a great idea. I mean, undoubtedly, you know, every, every smart person's full of good ideas, but not a solution to a market problem. So you could, for example, have developed some really innovative tech, but it's not solving a problem that other businesses or consumers can identify with, so it's not going to fly. You might have a great team, highly likely. You know, you've probably been to business school, good universities, worked in some great places. You've built up a good group of intelligent, generally commercially smart people, but maybe not for a startup. When you're choosing your team, you've got to think about people that have an early stage mentality. Growth and success, is unlikely to be a binary exercise. And people who are versatile, and by that, I mean innovators and problem solvers. So for example, ask yourself this, if things don't go initially to plan, is your team one that can scale back on their immediate remuneration? If your solution, in inverted commas, is not solving a problem that the market cares about, could your product pivot, perhaps? and solve another problem that you haven't yet thought of your team remember can help you with this idea so it seems simple great idea great people commercial success when you found that have the confidence to grow quickly or the competition will overtake you so that was the first what you would say mistake mistake is really not having the right solution to the problem and not having a great team at least in respect of startups so what's the second organizational structure so interesting one this I guess when you you wouldn't think this but when people set up a startup they'll often do it as a sole trader so just in my case you know just David on his own setting up a sort of an idea trading see how it goes it's really common now it may seem obvious but registering a company is a really good idea for a whole host of things. Now, one of the reasons is because if you're just yourself alone and you're not within a limited entity, you've potentially got unlimited liability if things go wrong. Essentially, you could lose your house. So registering a company means that your liability is limited to the assets in that company. And you can control that at all times much better than having the fear of losing your your worldly possessions. So a couple of ways you can register a company in in this respect. First formations, this is a normal UK one. Takes about an hour, 35 to 40 pounds, set up a UK company yourself, really, really easy. If you're international and want to set up a company in the UK, but you're not necessarily based here, the one below that is quite good, yourcompanyformations.co.uk. What that can do is give you a registered office in the UK. It can even run a sort of nominee bank account for you, uh, which is often a problem where the founders don't have a UK residential address, but this can help. Cost of that is between 110 and 120 pounds. Now, the holding company structure. While we're here, you're like, right, well, how's the business within a limited entity? That's a good idea to to limit my liability in this way. But think about if you have a trading company which enters into all the commercial contracts, it's doing really well, owns all the valuable intellectual property, owns all the valuable assets. And then there's a problem. Somebody sues it. What happens? You're at risk of losing all the value you've created. Now, a good way around that is to perhaps create a holding company structure. The holding company will own the valuable assets, be that the intellectual property or, let's say, an IT system. And then it will license that to the trading company. So the holding company does nothing except for own and house those assets. And the trading company enters into contracts with customers, with suppliers, etc. What happens If the trading company gets sued, the likelihood is you do not lose all the assets and the success that you've built up. Now, although it's not bulletproof, most courts worldwide are unwilling to do what's called pierce the corporate veil, which would be to allow the assets in the holding company to get attacked if the trading company gets sued. So good thing to bear in mind there. Number three, mistake number three no founder shareholder agreements. So you've set up a business with your friends, your colleagues from business school, university, people you work worked with before, what could possibly go wrong? Well, unfortunately, quite a lot. People do fall out. So think about how best you deal with this. Well, shareholder agreements, founder shareholder agreements, a really good idea for a number of reasons. First, they can be really simple. Take the example, there's, say, three founders. You're all doing different things that are helpful to the business. One's in marketing, one's in tech, one's in general management, for example. Stick that into an agreement. Because it could be the case, if you think about it, using some real-life examples, that after six months or so, one person gets married. They're married to somebody who's based abroad. They decide to move there. It's in a different time zone. They can't do what they used to do so well. You therefore need, let's say, a new marketing manager. But you can't get rid of the old one because they're the founder. You've got no shareholders agreement. These people own shares. Now, if you set up the role description, how many hours a week, generally speaking, what this person's expected to do, and the consequences if they don't, it's much easier to deal with that situation. Even if, for example, you don't rely upon, let's say the strict terms of the agreement itself, it's a platform that enables you to negotiate a solution that everyone can live with. So thinking a bit further on that, we've talked about role description. What about how decisions are made on a day-to-day basis? Are there decisions that you need to be by unanimous consent? Something big, for example, taking on a new director, entering into a very large new contract, buying a premises, for example. Maybe that's something that all three of you should be doing. But for basic day-to-day decisions, there's got to be a bit of trust. Maybe leave the marketing decisions below a certain monetary threshold to, let's say, the, the, the marketing manager, and other decisions that are a little bit bigger, maybe two out of three. If somebody leaves one of these founders, do you want them going off with the um, employees? Do you want them going off with the clients, taking the valuable ideas? Maybe not. Not a good idea. Have some restrictive covenants. What about if you have an argument? What if, turning back to the number of people, it's relatively common for a startup to have two founders, equal shareholdings, both directors? What happens if they fall out? Well, you're a bit stuffed is the bottom line if you don't have a shareholders agreement because nobody can do anything. They're in deadlock. If you have a deadlock resolution provision in your shareholders agreement, this can ease things. So for example, you could say that if you can't resolve a deadlock, either it can go to mediation with that third party chairman or perhaps one party has the right to buy out the other using evaluation mechanism such as for example texas shootout under this each party has the right to put sealed bids in and the party that wins can buy the other party's shares or sell their shares to that party at that that higher value now again thinking back to what i just said earlier you might not get to that point if you have a really slightly draconian deadlock resolution process where It all breaks down if you don't resolve the deadlock. Adults, the founders, tend to behave less like children, and they'll they'll tend to reach a more practical scenario before it gets to that stage. Lever provisions are also useful. If you've got one founder's come in, he or she owns 33% of the business. There's there's three of you, and then decides after six months they don't like it, they want to leave. What happens to their shares? But if you don't have a contractual provision, they keep them. And that can be really annoying because the remaining two of you can end up working really, really hard for the next few years, essentially creating value for that person that still owns a third of the business. So maybe have some early lever provisions. Decide among yourselves, we're all in this for at least three years. Somebody leaves before that, they're an early lever, we can buy their shares back for a much reduced value. Certainly worth bearing in mind.
0: David, can we just uh, jump in with a couple of questions? Of course, yeah. Um, One actually related to uh, the the second point where we're talking about the structure of the uh, the company. Uh, One of the participants online has asked that they're they're trying to launch an investment fund um, Mm. and they're registering it as an LLP in the same re. Well, should they register it as an LLP in the same region as where the fund is going to be domiciled? So, for example, should they register both the LLP and domicile the fund in the Caymans, or could they register yeah. the LLP in the UK and then domicile the fund in the Caymans?
1: Yeah. So, fund is not funds are not my absolute area of expertise. I mean, I can I can look into it, but I, I suppose considerations would be views of third party investors. Pretty useful, you know. Does a investment offshore these days? Many people don't necessarily want to do that although I appreciate that the fund itself being offshore is a sort of good idea. Um, If a a member of the LLP is going to be a sort of third-party investor, they may well want that to be in the UK. There's no issue with them being in separate jurisdictions, that is for sure. So, yeah, I'd I'd be tempted on balance, complete sort of instinct without looking into it. I'd be tempted on balance to put the fund offshore, but to register the LLP in the UK, mainly because the LLP is going to be the one that houses the, let's say, members, shareholders and UK law is can be really useful to a resolving disputes, but be also, you know, I suppose, attracting investment, be that as a member of the LLP or otherwise.
0: Fair enough. Okay, that's great. That seems to have answered that question. Um, and now, uh, one specifically about the shareholders' agreement. Uh, another participant has asked whether or not you think that as having CTO having higher shares than the CEO pre VC investment is actually a problem, or could this be spelled out in the shareholders' agreement?
1: Yeah, I mean the, these things totally happen before a shareholders' agreement's reached. It's it's a good, without being too too smug. I don't intend to be. It's a good reason why you'd want to get a founder shareholders agreement in place before as in quite a well way before the VC comes in, you know, one, one reason being that it can entrench really helpful provisions for all of you is not a bad idea that the VC then needs to negotiate out. Now answering the specific question, it's not a problem. I think a VC might think it's sort of slightly strange, slight, slightly weird. It would be helpful if the CTO and the CEO got on. That's a good thing. It might be a good idea if they could both chat and perhaps equalize their shareholding before the VC investment Maybe why the value, while the value is still pretty low, so that a sort of transfer of shares wouldn't incur much tax. But yeah, bottom line is you can sort out anything in a shareholders agreement. It's not an issue. But one thing I would say is before you go and talk to the VC, have your story straight with each other. What a VC will not want to see is any kind of disquiet between the CTO and the CEO because it unnerves them and also it sort of gives them an opportunity to divide and rule and offset one against the other. So good thing to um, to equalise. So intellectual property. Now, people probably know more or less what that is it is IP is like the special source of what you're trying to develop. It's the, it's the expression of your idea. What, what does intellectual property actually do? Well, it's a set of legal rules that give you the commercial advantage by registering, usually, this intellectual property. It gives you commercial advantage for the development of your idea against other companies that might want to develop similar ideas. So it can really add value to your idea and its, and its commercial expression of it. Now, just a good way of seeing intellectual property is really on a spectrum, one end to the other. Now, at one end, you have protection of what you would call innovations and the expression of the idea itself. Now, what's that? That's patents. That's copyright. And I'll explain a little bit on that shortly. Goes right through to the other end towards the protection of brands surrounding ideas. Now, what we're talking about there are things like trademarks. We're talking about domain names, all those kind of stuff. So what's the difference? Well, the difference really is, if you think about it, most successful entrepreneur may not be the one who thinks up a brand new idea and exploits it. Many, many are successful entrepreneur, more than those that think of something brand new they identify a strong business idea that's already been running, perhaps not very well, and think, ah, I can pivot that. I can apply that to a different area of the market, and on we go. Now, what that means is if you're developing something and you say you can get a patent in it or it's a, it's a brand new idea, yes, you've got first mover advantage. So that might be if you're a pharmaceutical company and you develop Something amazing that can really sort of change people's lives. In that situation, you'd likely to be able to get a patent for the formula of your pharmaceutical product. And then, because so much money had gone into the development, you get the patent that gives you 20 years' free run against other people, uh, trying to uh, exploit that idea. So essentially, you can get all the money that you put into research back and, and make more as well. Now, generally, that isn't the case. Um, Although there is an obsession with patents, what I talked about earlier, just before, is that if you can get this idea that somebody else has developed, you can exploit it better, pivot it slightly to a different area of the market, then you get not first mover, but fast mover advantage. You can register a trademark around your idea, be it a new name, a new logo, So you're not the first in the area, but you can get brand strength in an area that's already developed. So what I'm talking about here is things like, you know, Nike. Nike may not make the best running shoes in the world, for example, but a lot of people, when you mention running shoes, it's the first name a lot of people think of. Not because they've necessarily got a patent over the running shoe per se, but their brand is extremely strong. So what they've got is fast-mover advantage rather than the first-mover advantage that goes with patents. Just a little bit on that patent obsession. Now, a lot of founders will say to me, well, can I patent my idea? Probably not, is the answer. To patent something, it needs to be entirely novel, and it needs to be capable of commercial application. It's very rare to be able to get a patent, actually. It can also take a long time to register. It can take hundreds of thousands of pounds, and it's public from the moment you make the application. So think big companies can come in, look at it, and go, hmm, that looks interesting. I might give something a go that's really quite similar to that. What this doesn't mean, by the way, is that you shouldn't start off. A strategy, the original process of applying for a patent is not that expensive and you can stop sometimes when you have early stage investors you can start an application process and maybe if you put patent pending which you'd then be entitled to do on your investment ready documents that might be something that might attract investors or at least highlight you above many other startups that they might invest in just a quick summary on trademarks as well right at the other end of the spectrum Trademark is a registration of a name or a logo. It's not about the protection of the idea. So again, Nike, the name, or the big swoosh that goes with the Nike name. So hopefully that gives you some idea of of IP. One to watch out for, make sure you have the right to use all your assets. If you set up a new business, one of your co-founders comes in, got an amazing new IT system, ask them where they got it. Did they develop it alone Did they develop it in combination? Did they develop it in another business? Now, unfortunately, IP infringement actions against startups are some of the most common reasons among the ones, along with the ones I've given as to why startups fail. Do bear that all in mind. NDAs, don't go blagging your idea around the pub. If it's a good one, try and make people sign non-disclosure agreements before discussing The special source element of it, the really confidential stuff with them in any detail. Anyone who works with you, make sure that they sign intellectual property assignments. Really easy, one-page document. Anything you develop during the time that you uh, work for us, whether they're employees or contractors, belongs to the company. Gives that value. Investors will love it. Also with commercial contracts with venture partners, I'll move on to that actually on another slide when I discuss another common mistake of startups. Now, employment practices, let's have a think about those ones. First one is know the local law. So many a US company moving to London, they get a little bit surprised when that employment at will thing that you get in the US, which is basically you can hire and fire at will, doesn't really exist in the UK. Um, It's really problematic to fire people. Equally, many UK companies, if they go to France, for example, they're a little bit shocked that the employee taxes there are hugely high. And the labour force is very unionised. It's even more difficult to fire people in France. So before you employ people in a country, know the local law. Wherever you are, written contracts. Now, let's think about it. We all sort of live by the expression, okay, hire slowly, fire quickly, good idea. We don't tend to do that in practice as well. How do you protect yourself? Well, number one, take a new person on probation period. Have a period, say, three months, six months, where you can get rid of somebody on one week's notice if it's not working out. Have a proper role description so that any sort of performance analysis performance meetings can be undertaken against that that's in the contract much easier to do that than than if you don't have anything at all as i discussed before restrictive covenants intellectual property clauses very important make sure everything is owned by the company make sure the employee is not going to leave you and go off with all the clients and potential employees which without those clauses they may well be able to Another thing with uh, employment practices, bear in mind, do understand the distinction between employees and consultants. So (laughs) recent years have been a little bit difficult. Poor tax authorities, you know, bless them. They've, They've struggled to get as much tax revenue in as they used to. Now, what this means is they're showing more of a sort of keen eye on whether consultants might be employees. And it's easily done. It's an easy mistake to make. Now, you start off a business, you've got somebody in, they're part-time, they're not on your payroll, they're doing a couple of days a week, don't really care where they work, they do work for other people, you're a victim of your success, it all goes well. This person starts working more and more full-time for you, they start needing to be, let's say, in an office, at least in pre-COVID times, and they're more under your direction. Very quickly, that can lead to a situation where they should be on your payroll. If they're not, what can happen is that further down the line, when you put your annual accounts in, there can be an HMRC audit. They look into you and they go, you know what, quite a few of your people, they should be employees. So you should be paying employer national insurance on them. Unfortunately, you haven't done for a while. You owe us interest, you owe us penalties. That's really disappointing to be a victim of your own success if you don't look at that. Worth also considering that investors are paranoid about this stuff. Get it right, you'll really impress investors. Get it right, your valuation will be higher. Definitely worth taking into account. Share incentives. So a bit of a connected one here. Now, I think a lot of founders will say I don't wanna give shares to my employees or or advisors. I'd be giving up control of my my business. Well, not necessarily. You can award shares or options that are non-voting. You can award growth shares or options that, for example, they only trigger any kind of benefit at all upon a certain defined moment of success happening, a big fundraising or an exit, for example down the line and you know what it doesn't hit your cash flow it's sometimes you'll have say a really amazing coder from let's say google true example this who will want to join you but unfortunately they're earning a lot of money daily there perhaps you can give them some shares it doesn't have to take away your control they can be non-voting shares or they can be options that trigger when things go well definitely a way of balancing hitting your cash flow with long term incentives the fact they are long term incentives also means you can tie the award of those shares or the award of those options to this person's behavior so rather than have you know really big hitting restrictive covenants that are you going to enforce them you know your your senior person leaves they want to take clients they want to take employees with them fight it out in court doesn't make you look good doesn't make them look good. You're probably still going to lose the clients and the employees anyway. Now, if you have shares or share options and in an agreement with them, it says, well, if you leave and you don't go and join a competitor and you don't take everything with you, you might be able to keep some of those or we might buy them back at proper value. That will encourage people to behave well. Say they want to leave. People do. They're more likely at that point to go, well, I don't really want to lose all the value I've created. So maybe an idea, I go to my co-founder or I go to my boss and go, you know what, I do want to leave, but I don't want to lose all my value. So let's have a chat. Co-founder says, well, tell you what, you can have this and this client. They're likely to go with you anyway, but please don't take these ones. You can maybe take this employee but don't touch these ones. And you get to a compromise position that everyone can live with. What does that do? It keeps the name of your company strong in the market as a good employer. And it also keeps some value in your business. Now, all very easily done just by awarding some share options or some growth shares. Commercial contracts. Now, here's an interesting one. I can understand the position. I can understand that you've been working hard and you get this big, big deal in. It's it's looking really good. It's like, you know what? Let's just get on with it. Let's just sign. All this money's coming in. It's brilliant. We're winning. Off we go. And sadly, that is often what happens. And then a year down the line, somebody reads the contract. It's not great. Should be like a chess game. Try and take a deep breath. Look at the end you want and work backwards from that in the terms that you're going to agree to. So obvious things to think of. Limit your liability. Have a limitation of liability clause. Don't go into it, you know, betting your house or or essentially betting the entire company if things go wrong. Protect your intellectual property if you're the supplier For example, just license that intellectual property to the client to use on a limited basis, not, for example, on the basis that they can then take it, develop it further with a cheaper supplier, and cut you out, which which is a real-life example of what often happens. Non-circumvention, if you introduce them to other members of your network, should they be able to go around you and contract directly with that network? No. What you've done is really valuable in introducing them. So you want to put a stop to that as well. And finally, just using another example, what about non-solicitation? You go in to a client, you take your development team. What's to stop that client just going, oh, this development team is good. We'll just employ or engage them directly. Well, there's quite a lot. You can put a non-solicitation clause into your commercial contracts. So hopefully that just gives a few explanations of what you should be looking out for. Now, one practical point to to give you here is you might be saying to me, well, we've got no leverage. We just get given these standard terms and conditions of these big companies uh, that we're fortunate to contract with, they don't change. They don't contract on anything other than their terms and conditions. From experience, not necessarily true, but do it by way of side letter. So you can say to them, you know what, I appreciate you don't want to change your terms and conditions, but there's a few things that are really important to us. Could we just sign this one pager outside the terms and conditions that says, for our contract, these provisions will take precedence over the terms and conditions, particularly, for example, in areas that that I've just discussed. Bigger companies, I can promise you, are far more willing to do that than to go for wholesale changes to their actually standard terms and conditions, which tend to require them going up the chain to their big boss and taking ages. So again, hopefully that's a bit of a good practical suggestion for you. Term sheets. If you've got lots of leverage at term sheet stage, so you've got a few potential investors, maybe you can also insert a provision that says, And this provision will be binding that says, right, if you, the investor, materially change any of the terms at the long form stage and we withdraw, you, the investor, pay our costs or pay a contribution to our costs. What that can do, um, and again, it only applies if you've got significant leverage, but what that can do is mean that, you know, you can get some of those costs back and you've got more ability to perhaps start with a new investor. And again, frankly, if somebody's put that binding provision in the term sheet anyway, they're less likely to um, be silly and want to change their mind later on. You're more likely to hold them to what they've said earlier on. So a few, a few sort of quick examples of the things to look out for. Liquidation preferences, bit of a debt equity hybrid here. Best of both worlds for an investor. One times liquidation preference. Now, this means that the investor gets back their initial investment before anybody else gets anything on an exit. And if things go well, they share equally in the upside. Bottom line is, these are relatively common at Series A stage. One times, not two times. So not like they get back double their money before anyone else does. Only one times. But at Series A stage, not before then. Push back heavily if in an early stage fund raise you ask for a liquidation preference. Ratchet, this is more a sort of non-dilution, early stage. Somebody goes, I'll invest 200 grand in your business, but I always want to have 10%. Seems good when you're getting 200 grand early on. But what happens at the later stage of an investment, you, the founder, and any other investors that have invested before this person with the benefit of the non-dilution ratchet, you get doubly diluted. Every time there's a new investment, because the person with the ratchet isn't getting diluted at all. If you must agree to this, make it time limited. So, for example, say, okay, you don't have a percentage reduction only until after the only until the first main funding round. After that point, you get diluted as well as everybody. Reverse vesting of founders. You've worked blood, sweat and tears for a number of years before your first major investment. Big investor comes in and basically goes your shares are reverse vested for another four years what does that mean well it basically means if you leave at any time in the in that four years you have to give back some of your shares that you've already worked hard for push that back to a maximum of two years and make it also limited to your voluntary departure so if you resign in that first two years of your own volition Yes, perhaps it's reasonable that you you give back some of your shares, but not otherwise. Bad lever, again, some investors try and put a bad lever provision in that says, if the founder resigns at any time ever, they give back their shares for next to nothing. Sounds a bit like slavery to me. So definitely push back on that one. Have bad lever applying to sort of gross misconduct only stuff that's within your control so that, you know, if you literally hit the investor in the office, you know, then understandably that's probably gross misconduct. But if they think you're sort of not performing too well, which is a common sort of way that investors try to get rid of founders and get the shares back, don't allow that to be part of a bad leave condition because investors can easily do that. Just quickly moving on to number nine, data protection. I only do this because it's investors are paranoid about it. If you're processing any personal data, then you know, which and, and personal data being anything from which an individual is identifiable, you're going to need to register with the local data protection authority as a data controller. Uh, the two ones there for both the UK on the top and Europe are stated in those links. It's pretty easy data protection. I mean, bluntly, how do you deal with somebody else's property? Somebody's personal data, it is theirs. It belongs to them. If you're going to use it, state how you're going to use it on your website. Get the sort of customer to sign up to this. Um, Equally, if you're going to share that data with a third party, say for marketing purposes, definitely get the customer's consent before you do that. And finally, if you're sending out marketing emails, for sure, get an unsubscribe button on the bottom of the email. That will save you loads because bottom line is, even if you get somebody who sent an email and they're they're really annoyed by it, if they can unsubscribe, the relevant data protection authority is not going to give you much of a hard time. And the final one, and this is more one, rather than going through it, It's just a list there that you can all have. One of the worst things that can happen is that it gets to the point where you get a big investor in. And at that point, it's like, oh my God, I haven't got any documents. I haven't set them up in an organized way. If you're an investor, impression is everything. So if you're an investor, are you gonna invest in a good product whose documents are all over the place? not in an online data room. Maybe if the product's good enough, you can invest in a good product whose founders have set up an online data room split into all those areas there in a really organized way. It makes you look great. gives you the really does give you the best prospect of raising at the best valuation and on the best terms. And it's really simple. Start that data room right at the beginning, and just add to it as you go along. And the final one, know when to call a lawyer. So I think platforms that offer legal documents, no bad thing about them, but it's a bit of a pharmacy analogy. You go into a pharmacy and you know what you're looking for. Easy, right? Get some aspirin, all very simple. You don't really need advice for that. Go into a pharmacy and just grab the first thing you've got when you don't really know what you're looking for. Could be a bit risky. And it's sort of the same with lawyers. Do bear in mind that it's not all one or the other. Yes, there are impractical lawyers out there. There are lawyers that charge by the hour, but there are also lawyers, plenty of them, who are specialists at working with startups. They will provide free precedents. They will give you a cup of coffee to sit down and chat for free. And they really, really know what they're doing. So do bear that in mind.
0: Thanks for listening to this podcast from our webinar series, providing help to aspiring entrepreneurs. And I hope it was of help to you. For more on this topic and to continue your entrepreneurship journey, please visit london.edu forward slash innovation.